Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Hey, if I correct my cortisol levels, my energy problems, my fatigue will be solved, right? Because as I've already explained, like that is not the central cause of fatigue in I would estimate at least 95% of cases are not caused by a cortisol problem. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie. Welcome back. So happy to have you here. And this week, we are talking all about energy. So have you ever felt that mid-afternoon slump or having trouble falling asleep or waking up and actually feeling tired? Then this episode is going to be for you. And I suspect that many of you listening, if not all of you, have experienced low energy at some point in your life. Before we get to the podcast, I just wanted to shout out someone who rated uh, and reviewed the podcast, and it was such a beautiful review. I thought it was worthy of inclusion here. This is from Nadine in the United States, and the title is Sent from Up Above. When Dr. Stephanie speaks, it's like she's talking directly to me. Her clinical experience and ability to translate the science for women is something I have never found. You have the answers I have been looking for. Thank you for changing my life. Well, Nadine, thank you for taking the time to write that review. The more reviews that this podcast receives, obviously, the more Apple and Spotify and wherever you're listening to this on your, uh, uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, will find it more valuable and will show it to more people. So thank you in advance. And if you feel that this podcast has benefited you in some way, I would happily accept and love up on you for your five-star review uh, or five-star rating and or review, or both. Let's just do both. <laughs> okay. So on to the podcast. Today, I sat down with my very good friend and colleague, Ari Witten. Now, he has become a fast friend of mine, and we have spent quite a bit of time together in, uh, in recent months uh, geeking out on all things energy. I've been on his podcast, and now I had the opportunity to host him on mine. Now, Ari's work really does surround how we can have superhuman energy. So in our conversation today, we talk about 
all things energy. What are some of the fallacies around energy? So we talk about some diagnosing trends that uh, we see in typically the alternative health community and we dismantle that. So we're talking specifically here about the idea of adrenal fatigue. Spoiler, no such thing. And we talk about, we first talk about some of the basics, right? Like where energy comes from, how we produce it, what is the role of the mitochondria, not only in energetic production, but that it has separate and distinct roles in the body. So we talked about this idea of having the mitochondria signaling to the rest of the body whether or not there is stress and whether and how that and how that happens. So you're going to learn about pure energetic signaling and you're going to learn about cellular defense. And so we talk quite a bit about that. We talk about the myths of energy, as I just mentioned, around adrenal fatigue. And of course, this is not to say that the symptoms are not real. So anybody that has gone to Google and looked up, it's like, why am I exhausted? Why do I need to snack all the time? Why do I have low blood pressure? Why do I have multiple food sensitivities? Why am I gaining weight, especially around my waist and I can't get rid of it? You know, why is my libido in the dumps? Why do I have brain fog? What we talk about here, and it's an important distinction to make, is not that the symptoms are not real, but the classification of adrenal fatigue is a poor one. So we talk about why the common symptoms that someone might, you know, if you go to Dr. Google or Dr. DuckDuckGo, which I prefer uh, in lieu of uh, Google, but if you go to DuckDuckGo and you search up adrenal fatigue, you'll find like lists and lists and lists of symptoms. And they ought, they ought, overlap quite extensively with burnout syndrome, chronic fatigue, and vital exhaustion. So we talk a little bit about the literature in terms of these particular these three classifications. And then of course, we talk about how to fix them. And you know me, I'm a naming word nerd, right? So I I really like that we had this discussion because when you inappropriately label something, right, it is the the probability of you being able to fix it is quite low. Um, so this is why we had this discussion around the erroneous the erroneous naming of adrenal fatigue. But do talk about how we can actually get your mitochondria back online and how we can really double down in our circadian biology. So things like sleep and things like hormetic stressors and xenohormesis and all these other fun things that we get into in the podcast in terms of how you can get your energy boundless and how you can be limitless. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Ari is a wonderful friend, smart, whip smart, and I hope that you enjoy our geeky discussion. So without further ado, enjoy our conversation. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a 
a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot after hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Welcome to the Better Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, I feel like we were just talking off chat. Like I have outside of my husband and my family and maybe major, you're probably the, <laughs> the person that I've had the most contact with in the uh, in the past couple of months because I, I had the pleasure of being on uh, your podcast, The Energy Blueprint, and um, and also your summit as well, which was really, really fun to do. Yes, indeed. And as I was telling you before, um, I had a, a ton of positive feedback. People have really loved your content. So thank you for that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are going to talk about energy today and I'm so excited because this is such a big ball of yarn to, uh, to unfurl. And I wanted to, I, I think you're the guy to do this because it is a huge multifactorial, very nuanced, um, you know, when we're trying to figure out why someone doesn't have the energy that they want, there's a lot of reasons why it may be happening. And just like most things in health, it's, it's non-linear. It's not like A plus B equals C. I mean, sometimes it's that simple, but you know, the, those are the easy cases. It's the, the ones that have more systemic changes that, um, that clinically challenge us. And I think that uh, you are going to be the guy to unpack this beast today around energy. I, I hope so. Yes, I've been obsessively doing that for six or seven years now. So amazing, awesome. Yeah. All right, so let's actually start with your origin story. So I would, why and how did you come to have this special interest in energy? Like you and I have, have talked before about metabolism and body composition. Like how did you, how did energy become a special interest for you? Yeah, well, I'll give you the the super short version. Um, so first of all, background story apart from the, the sort of the energies piece specifically the background story is um, I've been studying health nutrition fitness natural health for 
23 years now. So, um, and as my, you know, full on obsession for, for over two decades, um, it started when I was young, just typical teenage boy stuff into fitness, into, you know, I wanted biceps, I wanted abs, get girls, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so I got into to bodybuilding and fitness very heavily. My older brother was a personal trainer and a bodybuilder at the time. So I wanted to be like big brother. And um, he since went on to be a chiropractor and um, has been in practice for about 15 years now, still, still my best friend. And um, so that whole thing has been happening. I went on to do my bachelor's degree in kinesiology. And, um, and then in my mid-20s, I got sick with mononucleosis from Epstein-Barr virus. And that pretty much rocked my world. So up till that point, I was super healthy, athlete, you know, very fit, very energetic. And then I got Epstein-Barr virus, I got mononucleosis, and I was pretty much wiped out for um, many, many months after that. And it, it, uh, it basically made me have essentially chronic fatigue syndrome. And that that just rocked my world and made me realize when you don't have energy, like your whole world is taken from you, like your, your, your job, like your ability to hang out with friends, um, ability to hang out with your girlfriend, the, to do everything you want to do in life is just kind of taken away from you when you're stuck on the couch or stuck in bed and you don't have the energy to physically get up and do the things you want to do um, with your body, with your brain, with anything. And that experience kind of was a catalyst for me to start to become obsessed with, with energy because prior to that, I was very much obsessed with body composition, fat loss, muscle gain. And then things shifted into energy. And when I started to explore that, I realized a couple things. One was, you know, as far as what was out there, there was really two sort of dominant paradigms of thought as far as the energy story, what, what causes people to be fatigued, what regulates human energy levels. And one of those is the adrenal fatigue story. And within the natural health community um, for, for a few decades now, it's basically the story is um, chronic stress wears out your adrenal glands, you get low cortisol, that's what causes you to be chronically fatigued. Okay, I'm sure we're going to talk more about later about that piece. But the, the short answer is the science doesn't support it. And when I really started to dig into that science and I kind of discovered, wow, the science doesn't really support this, that made me really even way more interested in, in the topic of um, fatigue and what regulates human energy levels. Because it was like, whoa, all these people, including all these people that, that like, I respect and that I've been learning from for the last decade, they're all wrong on this issue. And nobody seems to know that. And so like, I started to have a sense of, oh, what if I could you know, be the one who builds out the, the real science of energy levels? And then within conventional medicine, you know, there's, a, uh, there's a review from, it was published in the American Journal of, of, the Journal of the American Family Physician, and it's called Fatigue and Overview. And it's a, uh, basically a, a review of all the literature around chronic fatigue and evidence-based guidelines for uh, physicians on how to treat 
chronic fatigue, sort of the, the best of modern medicine, what do they have for their people suffering from fatigue? And what they came up with is basically what they do is standard blood tests, unless you have some symptom that suggests, you know, some rare like parasitic infection or tuberculosis or something like that, they might do some specialty testing. But for the most part, you get a standard blood test. And in this review, they said explicitly, 95% of the time, those blood tests do not show any significant findings. They do not give any insight into what are that person's causes of fatigue, okay? So, which that in itself is remarkable, right? You have all these people convinced, oh, the best of modern medicine, surely they're gonna, I'm gonna go to my doctor, they're gonna, if I have any symptom, they're gonna do a test on me, the test will show all these different things that are in my blood and they'll be able to quickly identify all the different unique causes of my problem and then solve it, right? That's kind of how most people think. The reality is 95 out of 100 people, they'll find nothing on your blood test that explains your fatigue. So then in this review, they list the four top, you know, best of the best of what modern medicine has to offer for fatigue, the four treatments. Those are antidepressants, cognitive behavioral therapy, a recommendation to go walking for half an hour a day and using stimulants as needed. Those four treatments. That's what conventional medicine has for people with fatigue. So um, basically, for I should say for 95 out of 100 people, and the other 5% are probably things like anemia, hypothyroidism, et cetera. Okay. So 95 out of 100 people are basically going to get prescribed those four things and be told, you know, this is the extent to which we can help you. Or they're going to go see someone in the natural health realm and be told, hey, it's your adrenals, get on these adrenal support supplements, yada, yada, yada. Um, so as I started to, to explore that science, I realized that both of those views were just radically either wrong or radically incomplete. And, and that's what really sparked my obsession to start digging into the science very obsessively um, with building out you know, the, the real science, which is, as you alluded to, very complex real science of what are the factors that regulate human energy levels. And we are, uh, are going to go there. So I, usually when, when I start a, a podcast or a conversation with someone, I think that for the listener, it usually makes sense to sort of take a 30,000 foot view and then kind of get more and more specific as we go. But I think in this particular scenario, it sh- I think I want to I flip that. And I want to start at the cellular level so that we can give everyone a basic understanding of how energy is made. And then we can start to go up a couple of levels in terms of clinical applications, the adrenal fatigue hypothesis, as you have alluded to already, and what are some of the considerations that we have for, for management? Like, if those are my options, antidepressants, cognitive behavioral therapy, walking for an hour, like, kill me. <laughs> like, come on. Like, that's, no, that's not a, or a stimulant as needed. Like, shoot me in the, in the eye right now. So mm-hmm. we're, I, I want to talk about some different considerations for therapeutic interventions that honor the... Um, you know, that honor the unique, you know, individual, like the physiological parameters that I think we should dive into first, and then we can, and then we can blow it out. So let, let's start with how the body makes energy. Where does it come from? What happens? 
um, and you don't have to, you know, if, if you're listening to this, I have a lot of, there, there are a lot of clinicians that listen to this. So we have MDs, DCs, NDs, you know, nutritionists. So this might be a nice refresher for them. But for the listener, don't worry, we're not going to tell you the exact mechanisms for the Krebs cycle. Like it's not going to, we're not going to go that crazy. But can you explain, you know, where energy comes comes from, what the body, what the body does? Yeah, so I, I will do a... Um... A dive, a deep dive into it. That's from a very different frame than a typical biochemistry class. Okay, and it's very important that we do it from this frame because this is a big part of the, the big picture understanding. So, first, um, when we were in high school and college biology courses or biochemistry courses, we all learned, you know, the powerhouse of the cell or the energy generators of the cells are our mitochondria. And the way that those mitochondria were conceptualized, and to a large extent still are conceptualized in most common typical biology courses, is as mindless energy generators. They basically just take in primarily carbs and fats and do some, through various mechanisms, through glycolysis, through the Krebs cycle, um, they then take those compounds put them into the mitochondria and the mitochondria then take these compounds from carbs and fats, shuffle them through a bunch of complexes and eventually pump out something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is cellular energy. So in that sort of paradigm of energy, we could say like, I guess you, you, could, you could sort of conclude, hey, if you just provide your body sufficient carbs and fats, then it should just pump out lots of energy, right? If, if that's your whole understanding of what are the factors that create energy, it's just a matter of providing fuel to your mitochondria so they can make energy. Yeah, you just provide just fuel. It's just substrate availability. Right. Yeah. But yeah. we know that it's way more complex than that. Okay. And here, here's the big, here's the big frame shift that really matters when it comes to mitochondria. Um, and, and I will credit Dr. Robert Navio, uh, who's a brilliant scientist for really uncovering the science around this. He's a, a researcher. He runs a, a lab for mitochondrial medicine at UCSD. And um, I've had the, the pleasure of uh, meeting him in person and actually having like a sort of personal one-on-one -on -one session with him, which is very cool. Um, but absolutely, I, I think one of the most brilliant scientists of the last 50, 50 years. Um, and he has written a paper, a couple papers now actually, on something called the cell danger response. And the gist of this model is basically an understanding that mitochondria are not just mindless energy generators that take in carbs and fats and pump out energy. They are exquisitely sensitive environmental sensors. And their role as environmental sensors is as important as their role in producing energy. So what does this mean that they're environmental sensors? Well, it basically means that they pick up on signals from the body, from the environment, okay? And so your body takes in signals from the environment, whether those are food signals, whether it's the air you breathe, whether it's the water you drink, whether it's how you move your body, whether it's the temperatures your bodies are exposed to, whether it's how much you eat, when you eat, um, how little you eat, when do you not eat, right? All of these signals are being, are, are being fed into the body the body then translates those environmental inputs into biochemical signals, and those signals are sensed by the mitochondria. And in response to sensing those various signals, 
the mitochondria decide whether to operate more in peacetime metabolism, which is energy mode, where they're, they are taking mostly just taking in fuel and pumping out lots of energy, or whether they shift more into cellular defense mode, where they devote, they shut down energy production to a large extent and devote more resources towards defending the cell against what they perceive as threats, these signals that they're interpreting as threats, as danger signals. And so, it's one or the other, right? Like you can't be in drive and reverse at the same time. It's like you're it, either in war, war or you're in peace. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Now it's not, it's not an on-off switch, it's a dimmer switch. So it's um, the, basically the way to understand it is to the degree that your mitochondria are sensing danger signals or threats in the environment, they will start to sh turn down energy production and shift more towards cell defense mode. So as a, you know, if this sounds kind of heady and abstract and not real world, just consider the last time you got a cold or a flu. What was one of the key symptoms of it? It was fatigue, right? This is not a mistake. Our bodies are designed to be fatigued in response to threats in response to the body needing to fight against something. Now that can be an infectious disease, it could be exposure to toxins, it could be poor diet, it could be psychological stress, it could be a whole range of different factors we can, we can delve into. But that is fundamentally how the body is designed and that's why we experience fatigue in response to um, a pathogen. It's an intelligent response because if you, every time you got sick, if you just had normal energy levels and you wanted to go out for a run and go work out and go work all day as normal, you, you would not leave your body with enough resources and energy to effectively fend off that threat. So basically it's intelligent in the sense that your body's turning down your desire to go burn off lots of energy, making you want to just kind of rest, lay in bed, lay on the couch, sleep more, rest more, and not be so active, and that way it can more effectively fend off that, that threat. Now, in the context of an acute scenario, like an acute infection, this makes a lot of sense, but things go awry when you start to have chronic exposure to toxins, chronic sleep deprivation, chronic circadian rhythm disruption, chronic psychological stress, chronic poor diet, right? All of those things becoming chronic then just kind of turn down your overall energy production chronically and put your body into this chronic sort of state of being in partially or almost fully engaged in um, the cell danger response, engaged in, in defense mode or wartime metabolism. Mm -hmm. And it, remi it reminds me of, I had uh, Dale Bredesen on the podcast and he was talking about amyloid beta plaques in very much a similar way that what you're describing, that we often ascribe, you know, the placking as these bad things, but in many ways it is a protective response. It's like the, it's like the body laying down how he, ca he calls it napalm, right? So this invade, it acts as a microbial, it's like an anti, um, antiviral, antimicrobial agent. And in, in many ways, it reminds me when we're talking about this cell danger response in the mitochondria as it is a protective mechanism to, you know, there can be, as you were saying, environmental toxins, nutrient deficiencies, poor sleep, you know, uh, a whole host of things that, that we're going to get into. Yeah. I, I wanted just, you... Just, just to follow up on that briefly, it's worth mentioning that for many, many years, 
people studying Alzheimer's thought that amyloid plaques were the quote unquote the cause right. of Alzheimer's. Right. They spent billions of dollars developing pharmaceuticals to disrupt or interrupt the synthesis of amyloid plaques, thinking if we can only you know, study the, the enzymes involved in the synthesis of these amyloid plaques, then we develop a drug that makes it so the brain can't synthesize them so well, and then we stop the progression of Alzheimer's. And they successfully developed a drug that did that, and then when they administered it to people with Alzheimer's, they found that it did successfully reduce the formation of amyloid plaque, but it accelerated the progression of the disease. So in the same way as an analogous, so very much to your point, as you were just explaining, um, in the same way with energy, this is almost the equivalent of like your body giving you this fatigue signal and then just forcing the body to make more energy by dumping a bunch of stimulants or caffeine into it. Right, right. Not for telling idea. someone to walk for 30 minutes a day and think that that's going to actually change the, you know, the environment that they're living in or the way that they're eating or living. Well, that one's probably the... Of the four recommendations they're doing, that might be the best one. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, I, I want to expand a little bit on the cell danger. So you were talking, so we, we move into this like wartime, right? This defense strategy where the ATP output or the energetic output is is downregulated. But we also see ATP as almost like a signaling molecule as well, right? So with the ATP starts to, can you explain a little bit of, of pure energetic signaling and how that also might be contributing to some of the um, almost systemic shutdown that we see with, um, uh, with patients with chronic fatigue? Yeah, good question. So um, in Robert Navio's model, um, one of the ways that this cell danger mode gets enacted is through, as you said, what's called purinergic signaling. And this is basically the leaking of these ATP molecules into the bloodstream. Now, it's important to understand there's the cell and these mitochondria, the energy generators that produce ATP exist inside of the cell. They're producing ATP, which is supposed to stay inside of the cell. So when ATP or ADP starts to leak into the bloodstream, that's where it shouldn't be, right? It's supposed to be inside of the cell. And when it leaks into the bloodstream, it turns out we have receptors throughout our body that actually sense that. And this is called purinergic signaling. And basically, it's a danger signal. So the, the way that the body picks up that there's a threat present is by virtue of the fact that some, some cells are under stress or are damaged or are dying and are leaking ATP and ADP out of the cell into the bloodstream. There's one more layer to this, very much related. There was a study by um, a group, uh, Douglas Wallace and Martine Picard, in uh, they're, they're studying a field, a relatively new field, called um, mitochondrial psychobiology. And basically, this is the interface of the mind and the mitochondria. So in other words, how does what's going on in your psychology affect mitochondrial function. And there, there's a whole field of research now related to this study, looking at, for example, the link between uh, mitochondria and depression, mitochondria and anxiety, many different psychiatric, psychiatric disorders, or even something as simple as stress. So in one study, they actually just subjected a whole bunch of people to psychological stress. Um, it's actually quite interesting how they did this. They, they, took a group of people and they basically just created an imaginary scenario where they sort of put people on stage and made all these accusations against the person, you know, um, 
just imaginary fake accusations. And then the person had to give a speech defending themselves against all of these imaginary accusations. And within minutes of doing this, they actually measured the blood within right after the, this, this took place. And within minutes of being subjected to this form of psychological stress, they actually were, were able to detect mitochondrial DNA in the bloodstream. Wow. So what, what that means is not only are we ATP and ADP leaking into the bloodstream under stress, but mitochondrial DNA are leaking into the bloodstream. And that seems to also, there's other research showing that that is uh, also one of these danger signals that sort of alerts all the rest of the cells of the body. Hey, there's, there's a danger, there's a threat present. So that happens, it's important to understand, literally within, I guess you could call it seconds of an exposure to a stressful event. That's incredible. And, and that brings me to a big part of why I wanted you on the podcast was to discuss how sometimes in natural medicine, functional medicine, where we get it wrong. Because what we have, what we have just been discussing is a cellular problem. And when we've already alluded to the term adrenal fatigue, which is not a diagnosis, it's not a recognized diagnosis, when we, when, we, when we ascribe a problem at a glandular level, at, a, at the level of the gland, like the adrenals have gone rogue. They're, mm-hmm. they've, they've, no long, they've decided that this body, like I'm not working for this body anymore. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we only look at it from a glandular level. You sort of miss the point. So with that foundation of how mitochondria work, and, it's a, and you've done such a great job, it's a beautiful explanation, and it's, just, it's more than the powerhouse of the cell, uh, which, I, which I really appreciate. Let's talk about the theory behind adrenal fatigue. And I just also want to clarify for anybody that's listening who has Googled uh, you know, they're like, why, why do I have no you know, energy? And they may have happened upon websites that have described their symptoms to a T, calling it adrenal fatigue. Not, we are not saying that your experience is not real. This is a conversation around nomenclature because this is where I think that we fail a little bit in some sort no, like no you and I, you and I traverse like some of this. And, and, the physio- and the true physiological mechanism. That's right. And if you, you know, if, if you, like I, I often, uh, when I think about this, like if I were to come to you, you Ari, and I had high blood pressure, you know, evidence of, uh, you know, atherosclerosis, and we did a coronary artery uh, score, and you could see that there's calcification. And then you said to me, you know what, it's probably like your muscles, your muscles are probably giving up. It's like, your adrenaline receptor. It's your it's your adrenals. Like you've missed it, right? Like you've you've missed the cardiovascular component to it, and you are now going to maybe do some things that might have a you know a peripheral benefit, but you're actually missing the meat of it. Yeah. So it's, it's like you've got Alzheimer's. I think Alzheimer's is the result of too much parathyroid hormone. Right. Like like it's. It, People can't see this very well right now, but the whole model of adrenal fatigue, and you were really alluding to this very well, it's arbitrary. It's like you're deciding one little piece of the overall system is the thing, and that particular piece that you've put all this focus on isn't even the thing that regulates energy levels. Mm -hmm. So is it the case that cortisol has an impact on energy levels? Yes. Is it the case that 
thyroid hormone has an impact on energy levels? Yes. Is it the, is it the case that adrenaline and catecholamines have an impact on energy levels? Yes. Is it the case that dopamine and serotonin and many other neurotransmitters um, have an impact on it? Yes. Is it the case that innumerable different biochemical molecules have an impact on it? Yes. My point is that there are many, many, many different hormones and other biochemicals that are involved in impacting energy levels to one degree or another. But there's an important distinction between something that has some bit of a role in a process versus the thing that regulates that process. So for example, does your accelerator pedal in your car control how fast it goes? No, the person pressing the accelerator pedal controls how fast it goes. Whether that person is pushing the brake or pushing the accelerator pedal, how much they're pushing the accelerator pedal, that's the thing that regulates how fast the car goes, not the existence of the, the accelerator pedal, right? So we, we, have to, we have to understand that distinction. And the reality of what's going on, the, the most compelling by far explanation of what regulates energy levels is that the mitochondria are this central hub and, and Robert Navio calls it um, the, the hub of the wheel of the metabolism because mm -hmm. they are this key regulator of what is going on at the metabolic level, whether again, we're in energy mode or defense mode. So um, what is the role of, of cortisol? This is Maybe, very... you know, you know, let's let's start with the yeah. cortisol. Let's talk. Let's talk about what normal cortisol does. Its diurnal pattern. Let's talk about the cortisol awakening response, and yeah. then let's tie that into, um, or or lack thereof, of how cortisol influences um, or low cortisol is the is the be all and end all for low energy. Yeah. So uh, in short, cortisol is is sort of a it's a hormone that's involved in releasing energy stores into the bloodstream and also has various roles. It has a number of, of, of different effects, for example, anti-inflammatory effects, immune suppressing effects. Um, Memory. It, it affects all kinds of things yeah. in the body. Many, many different, like dozens of different potential mechanisms that you could examine, but those are the big ones. Now, cortisol is a, as you said, a diurnal hormone. We have a big surge of it in the morning after we wake up and it stays elevated for a few hours and then declines throughout the rest of the day um, to a low during the nighttime and then surges again the next morning. Um, as an important thing to bookmark that we should come back to at some point, um, the, this fact that it is a diurnal hormone that surges at different times according to the time of day makes it so it's linked intimately with our circadian rhythm. And that's, that's a very, very important point to understand that we should come back to. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's basically what, what cortisol does. Now, because it has that role of being a sort of energy-releasing hormone in the sense of releasing, um, elevating blood sugar stores uh, from stored glycogen and so on into the bloodstream, it's been elevated to the status of, oh, it's the thing that regulates our energy levels. And the model of adrenal fatigue is basically like, uh, it, I should also mention it's a stress hormone. So it's secreted in response to stressors. It's 
especially psychological stressors uh, as well as physical stressors. So um, as a result of that, it's, it's basically this model of adrenal fatigue was built that essentially says cortisol, the adrenals and cortisol are the central players in regulating our energy levels. And um, cortisol is released during stress. And the problem is in the modern world, when we're under chronic stress, if we have stress every day from various causes, that causes a chronic release and, and chronically taxes the adrenals. And eventually the adrenals get burnt out and can't produce enough cortisol. And then you have adrenal fatigue and that um, inability to produce enough cortisol is eventually what causes chronic fatigue and burnout more broadly. So it seems at least somewhat logical and it was logical enough that millions of people came to adopt that line of thinking. So what I did, which unfortunately was pretty remarkable in the sense that almost nobody had done it um, up till I did it, which was actually look at the literature to see if like this idea has actually been tested in any meaningful way and um, round up the studies relevant to this idea and see if they support the theory or not. And I didn't have any agenda when I first did this. I, I was actually a believer in adrenal fatigue. Believe it or not, I was actually trying to write a book um, proving that adrenal fatigue was real. And the reason why is because I saw these conventional doctors who were brushing the whole thing off as nonsense, saying there's no science to support adrenal fatigue. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to prove that there is good science. And so I started digging into the literature with the intention to prove the existence of adrenal fatigue. And then I started coming across all these studies that didn't, that didn't support the hypothesis. So what what I eventually discovered after an enormous amount of digging, this was nearly a year of my life that I did all this research because it's quite hard to find even the relevant studies um, because you can't just go to Google Scholar or PubMed and type in adrenal fatigue because almost nothing comes up. Mm -hmm. By the way, that in itself is kind of a, 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 a remarkable fact because if you go to PubMed and you type in any other disease that you could think of, even the most obscure random thing you could think of, you'll find at least dozens, if not hundreds, of, of studies on that disease. If you type in adrenal fatigue, you'll find basically nothing. So what I had to do, so what I, when I originally, originally did that, I basically was like, okay, there's no studies, there's no research, what do I do? Well, then I started to basically uncover, like, what if I, what if I did just stress and cortisol? What if I did various kinds of stressors like physical chronic pain or chronic financial stress or chronic relationship stress or um, chronic cigarette smoking or you know chronic physical overtraining from over exercise and what if I looked at all of those things in relationship to long-term trends you know people who are chronically overtrained or chronic cigarette smokers chronic psychological stress do they have low cortisol levels um, what if you look at different disease states? So cardio, uh, cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes and, you know, you, there's a million other studies that look at cortisol levels in those different disease states. And what if I then figured out there's some other terms for, you know, different kinds of fatigue and stress-related fatigue states. So chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia is related. And then I found these, these, there's a few terms. One's called clinical burnout or burnout syndrome. One's called stress-related exhaustion disorder. And one, one's called vital exhaustion. And so then I started to do all these searches 
on those terms and cortisol levels. And basically what those are, are as, as the term implies, stress-related exhaustion disorder, it basically is this thing, right? It's this, this thing that people who are under chronic stress can get chronically fatigued. And same chronic fatigue syndrome is just this, this symptom of severe chronic fatigue. And it turns out that when you dig into all of those, you can actually find um, over 70 studies that have been conducted over the last 25 years, specifically looking at um, basically the adrenal fatigue theory. Basically, do these people with chronic fatigue have a problem with their adrenals and their cortisol levels? And so what they, the majority of these studies do and there's overlap. I just want to interrupt you for a moment. The, the, the symptom overlap is almost identical to, so when someone has salt cravings or feeling wired and tired in the evening or energetic lulls through the day, uh, you know, sugar cravings and, you know, startles easily. These are, these are also, uh, the, 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 this cluster of symptoms is also shared under vital exhaustion and burnout and chronic fatigue and FM as well. Yes, exactly. And that's to your point that you were making earlier, that we're not saying the symptoms are not real. Your symptoms are real. So anybody who's been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue and, and has those kinds of symptoms, or is chronically fatigued and has some of these other symptoms, um, bear in mind, again, I'm not saying your symptoms are not real. The difference between stress-related exhaustion disorder or burnout syndrome and adrenal fatigue is purely that only one of those posits a specific physiological mechanism behind the symptoms. So in other words, burnout syndrome, stress-related exhaustion disorder, and even chronic fatigue syndrome, they're just saying, hey, you've got chronic fatigue, or you've got chronic fatigue as a result of stress, okay? What adrenal fatigue says is you've got chronic fatigue because chronic stress has worn out your adrenal glands and your adrenal glands can't produce enough cortisol. So one of those, in other words, is just saying it's because of this specific physiological mechanism. Right. Now, all this research that I'm referring to is basically testing. Hey, is it from this specific physiological mechanism? Is it, do these people who have these conditions, stress-related exhaustion disorder, chronic fatigue, do they have a problem with their cortisol levels? So what all of these 70 plus studies that have been done by researchers all over the world for 25 years what, what basically all of them do is they take a group of people who have, you know, stress-related exhaustion disorder, chronic fatigue, and they compare it to a group of age-matched and gender-matched controls of, you know, and try to eliminate all the confounding variables of how overweight they are and smoking status and drinking and so on. They compare it to a control group who's healthy, who just doesn't have exhaustion or chronic fatigue. And, and look at their cortisol levels and see if there's a difference in cortisol levels. And the quick summary of about a year of my life delving into all of this research, um, and I've compiled this all on my site. If you do, a, if you do a, a Google search for is adrenal fatigue real and the energy blueprint, um, I literally have screenshots and links to all of those studies along with quotes and the actual screenshots of cortisol curves comparing the chronically fatigued or burnt out group with the normal healthy people. That'll be in the show notes. We'll make sure to include the link there. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the bottom line. So there's of these 70 plus studies, 20 of them are literature reviews. So 20 of them are actually themselves kind of 
looking at all the research on, for example, stress-related exhaustion disorder or burnout or chronic fatigue syndrome and so on. But 59 of them are individual studies of the kind I just described. Compare the sick group with the healthy group, look at their, their cortisol levels. And of those 59 studies, here's how it breaks down. 15 of those 59 showed a trend towards lower morning cortisol levels. Okay, keep in mind, I'm not even saying low morning cortisol levels. I'm saying lower, significantly lower than, than the healthy group. 11 of the 59 found the opposite finding, that the chronically fatigued or burned out group had higher morning cortisol. And then 33, the vast majority of these studies, 33 of 59, found no significant link whatsoever. There, were, there was no discernible difference between the people who were chronically fatigued or burnt out versus the normal healthy people in terms of their cortisol levels. Meaning if you took 100 people, 50 of whom had burnout, severe chronic fatigue syndrome, something like that, and you took cortisol tests from all of those people and you handed in a blind way, you handed all of those tests to somebody who swears adrenal fatigue is real and says, I diagnose people with adrenal fatigue all the time. Adrenal fatigue is unquestionably real. This guy Ari has no idea what he's talking about. You know, you give them those cortisol tests and say, you tell me which of these people has burnout or chronic fatigue syndrome and which are normal healthy people. And that doctor who swears adrenal fatigue is real will have as good of a chance at getting that question right as flipping a coin. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of the link between cortisol levels and chronic fatigue and stress-related exhaustion. Almost no link whatsoever. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And you see this in clinical practice and in, in the, in the air of, you know, uh, spirit of openness and transparency and honesty, I also have used this term before. And in some, some cases it's because a patient is like, I've done the searches, this is my, and we just use that term in our conversation. And I also used to subscribe to this idea of adrenal fatigue, but clinically you give people uh, an intervention again at the glandular level. So you may give them, you know, a glandular, you may give them like ashwagandha or, uh, and you sort of see like some people get better, some people don't, and there's no clear pattern. So when you give people, even when you give people, uh, like you would expect to be, to be able to test this theory. So I love the 
meta-analyses that you're, uh, that you're talking about. And we will definitely put all of those in the show notes. But even if you just take a simpler step back and you say, okay, if, I, if someone has, has lost the ability to produce cortisol, then if I give them cortisol, if I give them, you know, cortisone or, or whatever, whatever intervention, then you would expect that there would be symptom abatement. You would expect that their symptoms would improve, or you may, um, you know, once, uh, you, or you may think, uh, you know, cortisol should be a reliable predictor of symptoms. And as you said, it's like 50% of the time it is and 50% of the time it isn't. So it's like heads or tails, right? Yeah. Yeah. You said a lot of good stuff there. And, um, I, I want to, I'm tempted to unpack it in great depth, but I'll give just a couple quick comments. Um, one is when people do interventions, like in, in a clinical setting, when someone say diagnoses a patient with adrenal fatigue, and then you tell them, let's say, Hey, I want you to start meditating. I want you to sleep more. I want you to start exercising. I want you to, um, eat more broccoli and eat more healthy food, right? Um, all of those things, those are not adrenal-specific interventions. That's correct. Right? <laughs> I was going to say, that ain't adrenal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like circadian. So, yeah. so the, the, mistake, the error in logic that a lot of people make is once they ask people to improve their sleep hygiene habits, improve their nutrition, um, you know, de-stress, and so on, and then go up, see, we, it was adrenal fatigue and now we, we fixed your adrenals. It's like, no, right. those things affect every system of the body, not specifically mm -hmm. the adrenals. So mm -hmm. that's an important distinction. And as you, as you said, right, rightfully, and this is a very important point, that you can test the theory directly. Additionally, in, in addition to the way that I just described with all of these studies that look at cortisol levels between these two groups, there, you can actually give exogenous cortisol and see if it fixes the problem. And, um, and that was actually a theory that goes back almost 40 some years now. And there was a, I'm spacing on the guy's name. I, I want to say it's, um, William something. I have it in the, in one of my articles, but there was a guy back in like the 1980s who was basically saying chronic fatigue syndrome is the, is caused by low cortisol. So we need to give everybody exogenous cortisol. And, and so he was doing that for years and many doctors did that for decades. Well, it was tested in the context of people with chronic fatigue syndrome. There were several studies that actually tested that. And the, the, best, the best one that happened, I believe in 2001, and I have it in, the, in my article as well, um, was a, a double-blind, randomized, crossover, placebo-controlled study, which is basically as good as studies get. And what they found at the end of this study was that there was no significant difference in symptoms in these people with chronic fatigue syndrome in when they were getting hydrocortisone versus when they were getting a placebo. Mm -hmm. No significant difference whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So this has been tested in many, many different ways. There's also uh, longitudinal studies where they've done interventions with people who uh, have you know, stress-related exhaustion disorder or clinical burnout and done various interventions and tracked their improvement over time, shown that they've improved, their symptoms have abated, and, mm -hmm. and tried to see if that correlates with any change in cortisol. And most of those studies find there's no significant relationship between the symptom abatement and the cortisol levels. Um, and even in, by the way, in the studies giving exogenous cortisone, 
even in the groups of people, the, the individuals that actually do have lower baseline levels of cortisol, it still doesn't help those people more than placebo. So, you know, it's one thing to give it to people who, who have normal levels of cortisol and still say, hey, even though your levels are normal, we're, we're still going to give you this. It's another thing to say, even the people who have lower levels, we're going to, to give this to you. And, and still, they didn't find any meaningful improvement there. So, yeah, basically, the short answer is uh, it has been tested in many, many different kinds of, of ways. There's many different layers of evidence. And uh, basically, no dice. The whole adrenal fatigue theory has been basically built on a house of cards that the science does not support that this is the key thing behind fatigue. Mm -hmm. Now, the one caveat I'll say here is Addison's disease. Addison's disease is a real thing. It is possible to have genuinely low cortisol levels and a true problem with your adrenals not producing enough cortisol. Can that result in symptoms, including fatigue? Yes, it can. Um, but that is an extremely rare thing that has nothing to do with the vast majority of people who have fatigue. So for the people that do have uh, low cortisol levels, so they're testing and they're testing the diurnal cortisol, and I want to marry this with um, a, a conversation on how we can actually start to improve our energy levels. So for people that do test low, whether it's the, the cortisol awakening response or their global cortisol is low, why, why do they have low cortisol? What are some of the reasons other than their adrenals going rogue? And I love that vision of like the adrenals just like packing up their suitcases and like, fuck this shit. I'm like, <laughs> like I'm leaving. So what, what, would be some other, what would be some other reasons why we might see low cortisol either in the morning or global, like total uh, cortisol levels lowered through the day? Yeah. So good question. One, before I answer it, there's one caveat that I want to make sure we, I, I, I mention here, which is I'm going to answer this question of how to optimize your cortisol levels and what disrupts them. But don't interpret that through the paradigm of adrenal fatigue, thinking that hey, if I correct my cortisol levels, my energy problems, my fatigue will be solved, right? Because as I've already explained, like that is not the central cause of fatigue. And I would estimate at least 95% of cases are not caused by a cortisol problem. Yes. So having said that caveat, what are the factors that actually do result in low cortisol levels or especially low morning cortisol levels in particular? So coming back to this idea of cortisol as a diurnal hormone, um, what, what gets most people diagnosed with low, with low cortisol levels and adrenal fatigue, um, I would estimate probably at least 80, maybe 90% of people who get diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, it's purely the result of circadian rhythm disruption or sleep disruption. Like literally it's, it's that simple. So as an example, to, to illustrate this point, um, there are several studies that have been done on chronotypes in relationship to cortisol levels. So you look at people who are morning types uh, versus night owls, night, night types, night chronotypes. And uh, basically what those studies find is just that. So th they can take people who are perfectly healthy, who have no fatigue, they have no burnout, there are no stress-related exhaustion, healthy people. You just compare morning people versus night owls. And what you find is that night owls have literally about half of the morning cortisol levels that morning people have, even when they're perfectly healthy and have no symptoms. 
So, and, and based on the, the actual levels of cortisol that night owls test with, and this is, you can see this in a, in a visual and that I've actually shown the screenshots in some of my articles that I've written on this, but based on the levels that a night owl would get tested at in terms of their cortisol levels, a doctor who believes in adrenal fatigue would look at that and say, oh my gosh, you clearly have stress-related exhaustion that's worn out your adrenal glands. You don't have enough cortisol. You have adrenal fatigue, right? And they subsequently go about treating them for adrenal fatigue. Well, they don't have adrenal fatigue. They're just a night owl and they don't even have any symptoms. They don't have fatigue. They're just a night owl. Purely based on your chronotype, you can have huge alterations in your uh, levels of cortisol, especially morning cortisol. Is that total? Cor- I was just going to say, is that total cortisol is lower, or is it the car that's lower? It it almost certainly affects total cortisol as well. Mm-hmm. But um, but in a lot of cases, total cortisol over twenty four hours might be similar. But I, I think it, it's 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 very possible that someone who's a night owl could have lower overall cortisol because of the much lower levels in the morning. And that might not be abnormal for them. Correct. Yeah, correct. Now that, in, I don't want to digress too much, but there's a deeper discussion there around night owls and circadian rhythm and chronotype. And the, the very short version of it is, I will just say most people who think they're night owls are not actually night owls. Okay. And so um, what, what I mean by that is there was a study that was done a few years ago. It was probably like the crudest study I've ever seen, but it's also like one of the best, most awesome studies I've ever seen. Basically what they did is they took a bunch of self-proclaimed night owls and they sent them out on a camping trip. They said, go out into the wilderness, sleep in a tent, no artificial light whatsoever. And literally within less than a week, these people who were going to bed at 1 a.m., 2.30 a.m. started going to bed at 10 p.m. and waking up at 6.30 a.m., right? Less than a week Mm -hmm. of simply being removed from the modern world full of artificial man-made light. You see that with women too, with the moon, they will start menstruating on the new mm -hmm. moon once they go out camping and there's no artificial lights and they're not divorced from nature. Yeah, sorry, go on. I had to just- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so so basically the the deeper discussion is, is that, yes, on the one hand, you could say the night owls are sort of, that's their natural rhythm. And then the, the deeper layer there is just, like, is it really your natural rhythm? <laughs> like, Or is um, it modern, like the blue light and the excessive use of devices and poor right. sleep hygiene? Yeah. And so, 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 so even among people who say, you know, I've always been a night owl ever since I was a kid. Well, yeah, you got shifted into a later rhythm at some point and that became your normal. But mm-hmm. It's not necessarily your optimal, it's your normal. So um, yeah, circadian rhythm disruption and, and circadian rhythm disruption separately from that can disrupt the diurnal curve of cortisol levels and proper adrenal function. As soon as you disrupt circadian rhythm, because cortisol is a diurnal hormone that is tied to circadian rhythm, you are necessarily going to disrupt your cortisol levels. And, your and cortisol predictably, rhythm. yeah. And predictably, you'll disrupt it as well. Yeah. So, yes. And so purely based on that, um, circadian rhythm and just night owl, being a night owl chronotype, are by far the most common causes of this. Also, just sleep insufficiency, not sleeping enough hours, also causes problems with cortisol. So there's three layers there, all related to circadian rhythm and sleep and chronotype, all tied together. Those are by far the most common causes of 
why somebody's going to have low morning cortisol levels and, and alterations in their, their rhythm, probably elevated evening cortisol levels, what's called a flattened diurnal curve. And often what goes along with that is lower total cortisol levels in addition to that. So that's the most common cause. There's many, many other different potential causes that could be other contributors to that. Um, severe sickness like mold exposure, chronic infections can potentially cause it. There's some evidence indicating that just chronic inflammation, um, like uncontrolled inflammation that's chronically present in the body can uh, basically suppress cortisol levels. Um, there's various medications that can cause it, including many common antidepressants, um, anti-anxiety medications, painkillers, things like that can alter cortisol levels. Um, having excess body fat causes more of a lower levels in the morning of cortisol and a flattened diurnal curve. Lack of physical activity during the day causes it as well. Um, and those are actually the biggies. There's some more speculative evidence around like toxins, for example, heavy metal exposure is linked with lower levels. Um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, there's evidence that that is associated with on average lower morning cortisol levels. But yeah, the, the biggies in my opinion are really going to revolve around circadian rhythm and sleep habits. So let's, let's, let's bridge that then and let's parse this discussion with circadian rhythm. So we've been talking about the mitochondria. We have, so anyone that's listening who thinks that they have, you know, air quotes, adrenal fatigue, we can bring this back to how we can start to optimize our circadian rhythm. Um, and I, I'd love for you to maybe unpack, let's, let's unpack, let's start with sleep. We can start to unpack sleep and sleep hygiene. Uh, I'd like to also touch on night eating and uh, Sachin Panda's work on uh, time-restricted eating and the effects that we've, that we've seen on when you, when you don't eat very close to your bedtime, your mm -hmm. sleep, uh, I mean, all markers of sleep improve, right? The quality of sleep, the quality, uh, the, your ability to stay asleep, the, in the, the electric, sign the electric uh, signature of the sleep, how much time you spend in each uh, phase of sleep. So let's talk a little bit about if someone is has chronic fatigue or they have been experiencing this deleterious uh, energetic lull for a long period of time, I think chronic fatigue, I think you need at least six months of like experiencing this to actually be eligible to be diagnosed with, with CFS. So someone has this energetic deficit that is impacting the quality of their life what would be some of the first things we can start to implement to start to improve, to move away from that cellular defense strategy, that wartime strategy, and into more of that ATP production in, at the mitochondrial level, at the cellular level, and then we can move up uh, in terms of uh, helping systemically to remove uh, inflammation and some of the things that are, yeah. Um, great. yeah. Great question. Um, so we've already, we've got a very natural segue because I was just talking about circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythm is actually the foundation of, of what I do. I think it's the, the most important first step for everyone with fatigue to optimize circadian rhythm. And um, of my, my energy blueprint system, it's the first of six steps. So, you know, get that circadian rhythm, get that sleep optimized to the maximum. It's so, so vital. Now, one layer, as we were just talking about, is how circadian rhythm interfaces with cortisol levels and the diurnal curve of cortisol levels. And that's cool, but here's an even cooler layer to it. So that very few people are aware of. Um, 
there is research showing that melatonin, you know, everybody's heard of melatonin. We all know it's uh, this sleep hormone, right? And we, you can get it in supplement form and it's for optimizing your sleep. Here's the, the big thing, really critical thing most people have no idea about when it comes to melatonin. Melatonin is one of the most important compounds for mitochondrial health. And it's the most potent mitochondrial antioxidant in existence. And it's one of very few compounds that can even get to the mitochondria, can get inside the cell and inside the mitochondria where it can act as an antioxidant. Now, melatonin is produced by our pineal gland every night before bed and, and during sleep. So if you consider that, then what you, what, you, what you need to understand about sleep and about circadian rhythm, about the time before sleep, when melatonin is supposed to go up dramatically, is that whole process is critical for rejuvenating your mitochondria. Every night, you're supposed to have an anti-aging regeneration session for your mitochondria, and that revolves around melatonin. So that melatonin is going to get in there. It's going to act as an antioxidant. It's going to stabilize mitochondrial membranes, protect them from damage, and it also interacts with the internal antioxidant defense system inside the mitochondria where it recharges the supply of other internal antioxidants like glutathione, catalase, superoxide, dismutase. So the whole thing, your nightly, your nightly session is supposed to be, again, a healing and recharge session for your mitochondria. Now, consider that there's research showing that just standard room lighting in a home, just like fluorescent or LED lights in a home, your home indoor room lighting, suppress melatonin levels by about 70%. Okay, so you're supposed to have this big surge of this hormone every night that you're suppressing by upwards of 50 or 70% every single night, day after day, year after year for decades, you're suppressing this critical hormone for recharging and regenerating and protecting your mitochondria. What, what, what would be the consequence of doing that for literally years or decades? You're gonna end up accumulating a lot of damage at the mitochondrial level. So my point is circadian rhythm optimization and sleep optimization is absolutely vital for keeping your mitochondria strong and healthy and protecting them from damage. And one of the, the other layers to interface here and connect the dots here with the cell danger response is the weaker and more damaged your mitochondria get, the lower their threshold for being able to tolerate stressors at the environmental level and um, being able to, to, de to cope with them and, and remain in a healthy homeostatic place, okay? In other words, the, the more damaged your mitochondria are, the more easily overwhelmed they are by environmental threats and the more likely they are to shift into cell defense mode and shift out of energy mode, okay? So that, is a, that in itself, just this circadian rhythm and sleep piece is a huge aspect of why our mitochondria get weakened and why they become fragilized and are so easily overwhelmed, so easily shifted into defense mode and out of energy mode. You with me on all that? Yes. Okay. So, yeah. So, so basically as far as practical recommendations on circadian rhythm optimization, obviously blocking out um, light, especially blue and to some extent green wavelengths of light in the evening is vital. 
Um, sleeping in complete darkness is vital. Uh, having adequate bright light exposure within the first half an hour of the day after waking up. And uh, this is another big factor a lot of people don't consider, but lots and lots of bright light throughout the day. Because it turns out that the, the, the brain's sensitivity to light exposure in the evening um, in terms of how that light exposure suppresses melatonin. And just to be clear, since I didn't explain this, um, light, especially blue and green wave, green, blue and green wavelengths of light, feed into the eyeballs, into this circadian clock in the brain in a place called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Those light signals are interpreted as daytime signals, and that suppresses melatonin levels. So as long as you have lots of blue and green light entering your eyes, melatonin levels are gonna be suppressed. As soon as that blue and green light goes away, your brain goes, okay, it's nighttime, time to produce melatonin and wind down into sleep mode. So that, that is fundamentally the controlling environmental input for this hormone that regulates mitochondrial health. So kind of, again, just quickly connecting the dots with what I explained earlier, remember, environmental inputs are translated into signals at the biochemical level, which are interpreted by your mitochondria. So light gets translated through nerves into a part of the brain, which gets translated into a hormone, which is one of the most powerful hormones for protecting mitochondrial health and physically protecting them from damage. And in modern life, we almost do the opposite, don't we? Right? Like we wake up and we spend in, we spend our days, at least, you know, many of us in recent months with the whole, like we're all indoors. And even, even before the pandemic, it was everybody, you know, you go to the office, you stay indoors. So you have this reduced amount of um, light that's coming into the brain. And then in the evening, we get in front of the TV, we get in front of our devices, we get in front of these blue light emitting uh, devices and it tells your SCN, oh, well, it's, you know, we have to inhibit melatonin release because it's not time for bed yet. Yep. So I had, um, I had Dallas Hartwig uh, a couple months ago on the, on the podcast and he was talking about, you know, how the different uh, light, you know, especially he was talking about it more in the context of seasons, but in the wintertime when the sun really does set quite early, you know, things like having, turning off all the lights in the home and for dinner, having your dinner by candlelight because that and your outside environment should always look like your inside environment. So once the sun goes down, the lights should go off, you know, mm -hmm. once, and if it's still bright outside, like in the summertime, you know, we have the sun is up until eight, some, you know, nine o'clock sometimes in the middle of June or towards the end of June rather, um, to still like, it's okay to have your lights on there, but as long as you're sort of trying to mimic if you're in the home or in the office, what it actually looks like um, in nature, I think is, is super important. Yes, absolutely. And to that point, um, again, having adequate bright light exposure throughout the day, because most of us are in, in indoor environments that yeah. are a tiny fraction of the light intensity of outdoor environments. And so again, that overall level of bright light exposure throughout the day, like we're, we're wired to be outdoors in the sun. Now that doesn't mean you need to be like sunbathing, but it means that at the very least you might be in a, let's say a shaded forest or something, and it's still going to be very, very bright orders of magnitude more so than in a typical indoor office or home environment. Mm -hmm. And what the research shows is that the more bright light exposure you get during the day, the less sensitive your circadian rhythm system is to suppressing melatonin from light exposure at night. 
Um, so in other words, what most people have going on is they have no differential. They're in an indoor environment basically all day. And so they're at this level of light exposure during the day. And then when it's nighttime, they flip on all the lights in the house. They have TVs and computers and phones emitting artificial light blaring into their face. And there's almost no differential between daytime and nighttime light exposure. So in terms of the signals getting into the brain, since this circadian clock in your brain relies on light signals and the differential between daytime and nighttime light, um, that whole system is now getting disrupted with consequences, um, of course, in terms of cortisol rhythms, but I would argue much more importantly in terms of the mitochondrial level. Right. What are your, what are your opinions on, uh, are your opinion on napping? Uh, really individual. Because like the Europeans do it, right? Like they take their afternoon siesta. It's an hour. You know, I, I sometimes I need like a 15 minute like powwow. Um, but what, what do you think about naps? Is that, does that affect uh, like, you know, people that you've worked with, clients, or do, have you noticed any patterning with napping? I think it's purely individual. The, the best study that uh, I've seen examining this was a few years ago, there was a, a group of sleep researchers that studied the sleep habits of hunter-gatherers. And they studied a few different tribes, two in Africa, one in South America. And they found remarkable similarities across all these tribes. And one of the myths that it debunked was the idea that, you know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors went to sleep as soon as the sun went down. They don't. They stay awake by the firelight, which, by the way, doesn't have much blue or green light in it, interestingly right. enough. Go figure. And uh, they stay awake by the firelight for two, three, four hours and then go to sleep. Um, the other interesting thing that they found was as far as napping, some individuals in the tribe did and some didn't. And... Um, there, you know, basically it seems to be an individual thing. Some people seem to be wired to sleep. Some don't. Um, one of the things in these more tropical equatorial environments that's significant is it gets really hot in the middle of the day and in the afternoon. So the, the activity pattern tends to be, um, a lot of activity in the morning. You wake up, you have many, many hours of being active, and then maybe you come back, you eat a meal, and then it's really hot, so you just want to kind of relax in the shade until, I don't know, it's 3 or 4 p.m., and then you might go out again for a period of time before sunset. But there's that middle of the day period, which coincides with all of these traditions of kind of siesta that many different cultures take, um, that, that they do have, if they're not actually physically napping, they're at least typically sort of resting and relaxing. So... Um, I do think it's a natural thing. I'm personally not a napper. You know, my older brother is a napper. It seems to be very individual. And the one caveat I would say with napping is don't get into the habit of napping to make up for lack of sleep during the night. If you have adequate sleep during the night and you also like to nap, totally fine. But don't get into a dysfunctional rhythm of napping to try to make up for lack of sleep. Right. Okay. Love that. So now we have, so let's assume that our client that we're working with, we are optimizing their sleep. Um, and I will also say one of the things I like to joke about is, you know, a lot of women will come to me for weight loss and it's like, you know what, before we start to engage in any sort of weight loss regimen, I want you to sleep for nine hours, eight to nine hours for seven days and tell me how much weight you lose. Like it's the free weight loss plan because you have 
you know, and you know this very well with all of your research with sleep, like there's inferior fuel partitioning when you're sleep deprived, you want more carbs, you want, you tend like the motivation to work out and do all these other positive lifestyle interventions goes like in the and hunger hormones too. Like, right. yeah, there's research showing this with sleep deprivation. They eat um, hundreds of calories more the following day right. in response to not having enough sleep and specifically craving, as you said, the, the more processed sugary fatty foods. Yeah, like the quick hits. Mm -hmm. So imagine we have someone who's now sleeping. They're getting you know consistency in their schedule. They are not waking up overnight. The amount of time that they're spending in each of those different stages of sleep is adequate. And you know, maybe they're not using, hopefully they're not using medications to put them into sleep because we know that that's not actually sleep. It's just a state of being unconscious. So let's, let's, they're not, they're sleeping well now. What would be some other things that you would want to drive either mitochondrial biogenesis or improved efficiency with the mitochondria that we have? Yeah, good question. Well, you, you'd mentioned um, Satchitananda Panda's work on time-restricted eating, so I'll, I'll briefly mention that and how that connects to mitochondria. Um, so the, the gist of the study you're, you're referring to is uh, they basically studied the typical eating habits of Americans and found that most Americans, so upwards of 75%, consume their food intake in over a 14-hour feeding window. Um, that's the time from the first bite of food to the last bite of food. Many of them are 15, 16, 17 hours a day, which basically means the only time they're not eating food is essentially the hours they're in bed, you know, and, and uh, otherwise from the moment they go, <laughs> they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, they're, they're, they're eating. Um, so what they did was they, they basically asked people to adhere to a sub 11 hour feeding window in the study and they, they didn't alter their food intake. They didn't alter anything else about what they were consuming or how they were consuming it. They just said, eat as you normally would, but do it in less than 11 hours per day. And just through that one intervention, uh, these people had more energy and they started sleeping better and they lost weight just from doing that one thing. Yes. And um, in addition to that, there's research showing that not consuming food within a few hours of sleep also leads to higher levels of parasympathetic activation during the hours of sleep. So your nervous system can actually go into a state of more uh, deep relaxation. And in addition, we know that a state of fasting is really, really critical to autophagy at the cellular level and the process called mitophagy, which is the same process at the mitochondrial level. So mitochondria literally recycle and rebuild their damaged, worn out parts every night while you're asleep in the fasted state. But if you don't have an adequate period of fasting, you're impairing the processes of autophagy and mitophagy. So you're going to eventually, eventually what it means is basically you don't have adequate time for your mitochondria to do that repair process. And over the course of months and years, they build up lots of gunk. They build up damaged parts and the mitochondria become damaged and weakened in the same way that they do from, for example, lack of, of melatonin, as I talked about before. So um, that's that piece. Now, the other big piece, as you were alluding to when it comes to hormetic stress, is um, we have to understand that, well, actually, let me go here. Here's, here's a good piece to, to, to describe what's going on here. 
So there are studies looking at, they do basically muscle biopsies. They, they take a chunk of your muscle and they can look at your muscle cells under a microscope and count how many mitochondria are in there. And there are studies showing that between the ages of 40 to 70, most people lose half of their mitochondrial capacity, half. So in other words, if you have a thousand mitochondria per cell, um, which is a reasonable number, might actually be close to the real number, typically 500 to, to 2000. So if you have a thousand mitochondria per cell at age 40, by the age of 70, you would have 500 per cell, okay? At the same time, the mitochondria that are present are going to be more damaged, more fragile, smaller, and so on. Pump out energy less effectively. Higher levels of oxidative stress, inflammation is gonna be higher. The whole thing that's going on there is going to be less functional and less optimal. But in particular, we'll just focus on the part about mitochondria shrinking and mitochondria literally dying off. Now, the interesting thing is it doesn't have to be that way. Um, there's research on lifelong athletes, people who do physical exercise well into old age, and turns out they don't lose half of their mitochondria from the ages of 40 to 70. 70 year old um, people who do intense exercise have similar levels of mitochondria to 40 year olds. So this whole process and if you expand the numbers from, you know, age from being a, a you know, like a teenager or age 20 to age 70, you're probably losing about 75% of your mitochondrial capacity. But that whole process is not a natural process of aging. It's a process of lack of hormesis. It's a process of degeneration that happens as a result of not exposing your mitochondria to the proper environmental inputs and challenges that they need to be exposed to. And the, the, the right way to understand this is if you've ever broken a bone or had a child broke a bone, they get a cast on it. And then what happens when you take the cast off? All those muscles are all shrunken up and like the leg or the arm is half the size as it was before, right? So what happens is if the muscles are not used and challenged and stimulated, they shrink. And that is the exact same process that's happening inside of our cells at the mitochondria level when you don't challenge your mitochondria. How do you challenge your mitochondria? Through hormetic stress, through different kinds of environmental beneficial stressors. And hormetic stress is basically a transient stressor that um, stimulates the cell, stimulates the body to adapt to that stress in a way that ultimately confers more resistance, not only to that stressor that it, that was, it was subjected to, but also to a broad range of other stressors. And there's many, many different kinds of hormetic stress. So physical exercise is just one of them. Temperature, both heat and cold exposure is another. Fasting is another. Um, there's obviously many different types of exercise. There's uh, what are called xenobiotic stressors, things like, for example, methylene blue, many other different chemicals would fall into that category. Um, xenohormetic phytochemicals or xenohormetans which are phytochemicals that can act through hormetic stimulation and, like and resveratrol and EGCG and exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And many, many others, a long list of all kinds of flavonoids and polyphenols and anthocyanins and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and you have uh, things like breath holding practices as well. You have things like light exposure, like red and near-infrared light, like UV light, um, a long list of other potential hormetic stressors, even things like um, 
more much more controversially, but uh, things like radioactive compounds in mm-hmm. very very small doses. Not something I recommend experimenting with because you re- the well, why would you when you can just fast? <laughs> like, why would you do that when you can just restrict your eating window? You know? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but there actually is it really fascinating research around even the use of low doses of radioactive compounds. Oh, I mean, I've read, I've read like a like cigarette exposure, same thing. Like you expose yourself to cigarette smoke. I can't remember the frequency now. The study is uh, escaping me, but I'll, I'll try to find it for the show notes. And that can also be a type of hormetic uh, stress as well. Yeah, it's. Um, the way this is a bit complex, but um, if you you can think of every type of hormetic stressor as having uh, sort of a grade, like let's say graded on like school grade from like uh, an A to an F, in terms of its profile of potential for benefit and potential for harm, and some have a lot of potential benefit and a lot of potential harm. And some have a high potential benefit and very little potential for harm. So something like um, sunlight exposure or breath holding practices or exercise or fasting, these are things that have very high potential benefit, sauna exposure, cold exposure, very high potential for benefit. It's very hard to do them in a way that's like horribly toxic. I mean, it's possible. You know, anything can be toxic in, in a way. Like you can drink five gallons of water in the next... 20 minutes and cause permanent brain damage and put yourself into a coma. Water can be toxic. So yeah, anything can be toxic, but what we want to strive for is something that has a high potential for benefit, low potential for harm and things like cigarette consumption or alcohol consumption or um, radioactive compounds or heavy metals. These are things that, yeah, you could say there's maybe some potential for benefit if you were really precise and systematic about how you dose them. But the potential for harm is is way too high for 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 my taste. I feel like this might be like the next Dave Asprey book. Like we might have, like you know, I'm sure he like knows all the things, all the protocols for them. Yeah. And the really the really good news in in terms of what you're saying is that there's all these different buckets that we can. There's these different silos that someone who is experiencing this chronic debilitating energetic lag can play with. And of course you want to layer things on slowly, but the sleep, as you were saying, kind of like the first domino uh, to go. And I always say that as well, like you and I are very much cut from the same cloth and that like, you just can't, like you can't, you know, green smoothie your way. If you're not getting enough sleep, like you're not healthy period. So the sleep has to happen first. But then, you know, he or she can be start, can start to play with, okay, well, what if I just go outside in the morning? you know, wake up, you know, get my coffee and sit outside on my balcony or on my porch or or whatever um, for a couple of minutes every day? Or what if I go for an afternoon walk outside the office, like just kind of lap the neighborhood? Mm -hmm. You know, there's all these simple things that someone can start, you know, we're not going to ask you to run a marathon, you know, when you first start exercising, like we want you to start, you know, maybe you start walking like that original suggestion, like 30 minutes a day, right? And then maybe that turns into a walk run and maybe you, you know, get a Peloton or you have an, you join an online class or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different ways that you can start to improve your energy that are for the most part, very much in line with the way that we are, our cells truly are, they expect of us, right? They expect to be stressed. And when we look at hormesis, when we look at this idea of 
why this is beneficial. The mitochondria, you know, 100%, we are improving the capacity, the efficiency of the mitochondria. We want to also look at sirtuin activation as well, which is something that I know, I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this before, but I, I remember I talking it. to uh, Dr. David Sinclair about this mm-hmm. and this idea that these, you know, cryotherapy and sauna and fasting and you know, he also talks about restricting macronutrients. Like he doesn't eat a lot of meat. He doesn't, you know, all these different things. Mm-hmm. These will activate these ancient mechanisms. And he was talking about sirtuin activation and like DNA repair and the DNA methylome and all that stuff. But the idea is that this is an ancient mechanism and bacteria and, you know, my- mitochondria are the same. Like mitochondria are not human. They are, you know, we, we think that they're a bacterial lineage that has been passed on throughout our our evolution. But we see like sirtuin activation, for example, in yeast, you mm-hmm. know, and we're separated. I don't know how many, I don't know how many, I forget the number. It's like billions of years we're separated from yeast. Yeah. Um, so these are, this is really about, and it's not just becoming paleolithic, like that. It's not just like doing what our, uh, you know, what our ancestors 10,000 years ago did. It's about just honoring the biology that we have and you can do it in so there's so many simplistic ways that you've outlined today yeah Um, you mentioned that there were six things so you said sleep have we touched on all have we touched on all of them like the fasting the exercise the red light all of them definitely not um i want to maybe i'll wrap up with that but the one dot i want to connect here on the hormesis piece that's that's really important just to kind of piece together something tie it with a bow Mm -hmm. is yes um Hormetic stress basically builds your mitochondria bigger and stronger and actually stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis to create more mitochondria. It also stimulates these sirtuin pathways that you're referring to, these anti-aging longevity pathways. But it physically builds the mitochondria bigger and stronger and increases the number of mitochondria. So the interplay of what, what are like the big picture of what controls our energy levels and regulates it is... We have, again, mitochondria as the central hub of this, as environmental sensors deciding whether to be in wartime metabolism or energy mode. We have these environmental inputs from all of these sources that are translated into signals that the mitochondria interprets to decide whether to be in defense mode or energy mode. But the big other piece that's important to understand here is hormetic stress builds these mitochondria bigger and stronger and makes more of them. The bigger and stronger your mitochondria are, the more healthy they are, for example, things like melatonin tie-in protecting the mitochondria from damage, but the bigger and stronger they are, the more of them that you have, the higher your buffering, stress buffering capacity, or what I call the resilience threshold, which means the higher the tolerance you have at the cellular, at the mitochondrial level for lots of stressors at the environment level that your cells can handle and can adapt to and stay in health and homeostasis. When you have a combination of lack of hormetic stress and other sources damaging your mitochondria, for example, lack of melatonin, leading to small, weak, damaged, fragilized mitochondria and loss of mitochondria, that lowers your resilience threshold. And now all these different sources of environmental stress can now overwhelm the mitochondria And that overwhelm, when those mitochondria get overwhelmed, they're saying there's too much stress, there's too many threats here. That's when they're shifting into danger mode and out of energy mode. 
So that's the fundamental big picture paradigm of what regulates our energy levels. Now, as far as what those six factors are, we talked about some of them, circadian rhythm and sleep, nutrition, um, light exposure, gut health, environmental toxicants, and um, hormetic stress. Those are, the, those are the big players. And if somebody wanted to learn more about you, maybe work with you, uh, I've had, I, I want you to, if you can, uh, tell us about your podcast, which I've had the pleasure of being on, and your program as well. Yes. So uh, the podcast is the Energy Blueprint Podcast. The brand is theenergyblueprint.com. And uh, I have a free training that people can opt in a free masterclass on how to double your energy level. So if you just go to the energyblueprint.com, you can opt in for that. There's also I just released my second custom formulated supplement. It's called Ultra Brain. So I have a mitochondrial supplement called Energenesis and another one brain supplement called Ultra Brain. Um, amazing. They're they're very high level premium supplements. These are not like typical supplements with a few compounds and you know one fifth of the active dose. These are like really premium formulas with 20, 20 or so compounds at actual effective dose. So uh, I highly recommend trying those out. And yeah, thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. It was a pleasure as always. Yeah, it's so great. I was saying to you, you know, before we got started, I, I just love talking to you. It's such a pleasure to speak to someone who is so well-rounded, who has taken the time to understand the science. And, you know, in the same way you have said this to me in the past, and I, I just want to bring it around full circle, that you are able to talk about many different things at a, at a level that really does exemplify the time and dedication that you've taken to your craft. So I've, I've enjoyed this conversation and many more that we will have in the future. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you so much. The feeling is so mutual and I, I always love our conversations for the very same reason. Thank you. So now you can probably see why I'm such a big fan of Ari and so grateful that our paths have crossed because the sharing of information like this, particularly to be able to share his wisdom in uh, the podcast for you, my listener, my Betty, uh, is going to hopefully help you make some really great changes in your life. Now, if you have made it this far in the podcast, you are my special ones, right? Like for you to listen to the entire thing, we have uh, lots and lots of information here and so happy to, uh, to see it through to completion. This is a really special thing that most people actually don't do. And that's why I always leave these little Easter eggs, these little secret messages at the end of the podcast. <laughs> so uh, if you are somebody who is looking to up-level your energy, I would encourage you to check out the Estima diet. Now, the Estima diet is a ketogenic diet, so it is a female-specific ketogenic diet. But what we do is, like we talked in the podcast, it is a hormetic stressor. So we macronutrient restrict the carbohydrates for a period of 28 days. And then after that, we start aligning your ketogenic feeding schedule with your menstrual cycle if you are still in your reproductive years. And if you're menopausal, then there's also cycles in there for you as well. So if you're interested in finding out more, please go to www.estimadiet.com. And I hope you have a wonderful week. I am so happy to be producing this content for you. So have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, 
musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.